From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to cover three articles that came out yesterday in Jack. I'm recording this conversation on June 11th, 2019. One of them is a really nice analysis which compares the guidelines from the ACC and the ESC in terms of hypertension management, and I think it's quite informative. Also, a paper looking at uh, using a genetic risk score to identify patients with coronary artery disease risk. And lastly, an update on where we're at with renal denervation for the treatment of resistant hypertension. So let's start with the guidelines for hypertension. This is a great review looking at the ACCHA guidelines versus the ESC-ESH hypertension guidelines. And let's just go through some of the comparisons between these two because I think they're quite informative. Both of the guidelines for hypertension talk about the importance of a low-sodium diet. That's less than 2,300 milligrams of sodium a day. The value of exercise, body weight reduction, low to moderate alcohol intake, not high intake, of course, and adequate potassium replacement. Both of the guidelines agree on the proper method of monitoring and measuring blood pressure, including a potential value of home blood pressure monitoring and ambulatory monitoring, and of course, uh, trying to identify issues with adherence. And both of them really highlight the potential future use of blood pressure telemonitoring and digital health solutions. Both recommend the use of an absolute cardiovascular risk estimator to calculate risk and consider patients with a greater than 10% 10-year risk of ASCVD to be the higher risk group that we should treat more effectively and aggressively. Both also provide a concise definition of organ damage assessment. The ACCHA guidelines have specific recommendations surrounding ethnic and racial groups, whereas the ESC guideline emphasizes the importance of environmental and altitude effects on blood pressure. Here's where the major disagreements are, and that is the level of blood pressure defining hypertension, as well as the specific blood pressure targets for treatment and the initial choice of treatment. For example, ACCHA guideline does not address isolated systolic hypertension, which ironically is detailed in some depth in the ESC guideline and recommending a target to a systolic less than 140. The ESC-ESH limits blood pressure reduction to no lower than 120 over 70, regardless of baseline age or target organ damage. The initial single pill combo pill is strongly recommended in both guidelines, with ACE or ARB plus thiazide or calcium channel blocker being preferred. However, the ESC guideline recommends it as initial therapy in patients at greater than 140 over 90, and the ACCAHI guideline recommends single-pill combination in patients who are greater than 20 systolic or 10 diastolic points above goal. Actually, the most important uh, distinction is that the ACCHA maintains that all patients with a blood pressure greater than 130 over 80 have hypertension, and that the blood pressure should always be targeted to less than 130 over 80. While this implies an increased cost to the ACCH guideline, it also stresses lifestyle change for blood pressure for six months for those at higher risk or with target end organ damage. 
Conversely, the ESH, ESH guideline defined hypertension as greater than 140 over 90, with the goal being 130 to 140 systolic and 70 to 79 for all, but targeting a lower range, less than 130 over, say, 80, for those at highest cardiovascular risk. And it defines those as the diabetic, the post-stroke, and patients with the CAD. So I think these two guidelines, obviously, they're both terrific. The American guideline really took to heart the SPRINT trial and established a more aggressive goal. The ESC guideline, a slightly more conservative cut point in terms of what they defined as hypertension and uh, treatment goals. So that's, I think, a nice comparison. Obviously, hypertension is almost ubiquitous in our practice, and I thought you would enjoy that. Uh, the second article I'm going to talk about also came out in Jack yesterday, and it's entitled... The genetic risk score for coronary disease identifies predispositions to cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular disease. Clearly, the ability to use genetic risk estimators to be more precise in estimating risk and therefore potentially how we use more precise therapy is something that we're all interested in. And this is a study looking at uh, over 425,000 participants in the United Kingdom Biobank. Their age was 40 to 69. And they created a genetic risk score based on 300 coronary artery disease-associated variants. This score was associated with 22 traits, including risk factors, diseases secondary to coronary disease, as well as comorbid and non-cardiovascular conditions. Of the total number of participants, about 5% of them had coronary disease. Hypercholesterolemia and hypertension were strongly associated with the coronary artery disease genetic risk score, which is no surprise. And of course, the score contains variants predisposing to those conditions. The genetic risk score was also significant in patients with CAD who were free of risk factors otherwise, the odds ratio 1.37. This suggesting, of course, that perhaps adding genetics to our current clinical phenotyping may increase our ability to be precise with risk estimation. The risk score was highly associated with coronary artery disease prevalence, and the study also observed associations between the genetic risk score and peripheral arterial disease, abdominal aneurysms, and stroke. It was also associated with heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and premature death, but these were abolished when they factored in the secondary risk factors for coronary disease. Ironically, patients with migraine headaches had an inverse association with the genetic risk score. So the author concluded a couple of things. First of all, it certainly does show some promise that genetic risk scores might add to our current clinical phenotyping in estimating a patient's risk, although this remains to be proven in terms of once we have the score, how to respond to it in terms of therapeutic decision-making. One really interesting part of this analysis was that in the biobank, there should be about 2,000 patients with familial hyperlipidemia, and only 50 of them had been documented clinically. So probably the biggest opportunity for us right now in our practices is not a wholesale genetic risk score, but identifying those individuals and family members with familial hyperlipidemia for whom guideline recommendations and effective treatment already exist. So stay tuned. Obviously, we're all interested in being more precise in our care, and genetic risk estimators certainly have promise, but there's still a long way to go.
The last article I just wanted to mention briefly was a nice review looking at the renal denervation as a treatment for resistant hypertension. The mechanisms by which renal denervation induced blood pressure lowering could happen include inhibition of renal efferent and afferent neural signaling as well as potentially anti-inflammatory and or drug interactions. Remember Simplicity 3, that hypertension trial did not demonstrate superiority of renal denervation in reducing blood pressure compared to sham at uh, six months post-procedure. And the authors opine that part of this might have been patient selection, medication adherence, suboptimal procedural performance, and or operator experience. Since then, there have been four other randomized sham control trials that have suggested that there is blood pressure-lowering benefit with uh, renal denervation. One of them was the Denner hypertension trial, the spiral hypertension off-med trial, radiance hypertension solo, and spiral hypertension on-med trial. And all of them showed about a 5 to 7 millimeter drop in systolic blood pressure compared to sham. So certainly we should consider the fact that simplicity did not completely destroy the notion that there may be patients out there who could benefit from this procedure. The question is, how do we find them? And we really don't currently know. Some people have thought that a centrally acting agent like clonidine is particularly useful in patients with hyperactive sympathetic nervous system and that the patients who respond to clonidine might be a group of patients who would benefit more from renal denervation. Ironically, with all of the drugs that we currently have in the space to treat hypertension, it's a rare patient that I would even think about for this because we have so much that we're capable of doing with three or four classes of drugs, particularly uh, drugs like spironolactone, which have such a big impact in patients that have been resistant to kind of the first uh, three classes that we use. Well, I want to thank you for listening to me today to the Eagle's Eye View. I enjoy bringing you a weekly cardiovascular update from acc.org. You can find the articles and the journal scans for these articles on our website. Also, you'll find an educational catalog under Education and Meetings, and this tool is very useful to you. You can sort your educational offerings by various formats, and of course, many if not most of these are free. Find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, I hope you have a good one. Thank you.